All right, so uh, we are in the book of Matthew, still, Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Uh, so if you want to turn there and be ready uh, to read in just a few minutes, we'll get there. Uh, but before we do, uh, we're going to do a little bit of review, uh, just to get us back to a mindset of where we've been in Matthew uh, and where we'll be continuing to go. We've got a big chunk of scripture to get to today, uh, 15 through 45, 30 verses that we'll be reading. And we're going to see uh, that Jesus is going to uh, be involved in this uh, back and forth battle of wits, uh, and so uh, I've called this sermon Wrestling with Wits, and you'll see why in just a moment, but before we talk about what's going to happen in our passage today, let's go back and think about what we've been seeing so far in the book of Matthew. All right, so as we've started, uh, as we've looked at all the book of Matthew, we're now uh, 21 and a half chapters in, right, so we're finding ourselves that far into this book, and we are finding what the point is, is very clear all throughout from the very first page, really from the very first words, the very first verses all the way till now, is that Matthew's message is to present Jesus as the messianic king, the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, the king that would rule and has come to bring the heavenly kingdom to earth. That's been the point of Matthew. We are looking at Jesus, and and Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the Old Testament that has pointed us to a messianic king, a Messiah who would come to save his people and rule. And so he is that messianic king that the Jews have been looking forward to, although they don't quite understand what that looks like. And so as we've been looking at Matthew, we've seen Jesus unpack not only has he been unpacking to say, I am the king who has brought the heavenly kingdom to earth, But he's also been teaching us what that kingdom looks like. How do we live in that kingdom? What is his kingdom? And how does that compare with the earthly kingdoms of this world? And we're going to continue to see that today. But most recently in Matthew, what we've been seeing through the the last couple sermons is Jesus has made it very clear through some parables and through some sharp uh, teachings uh, that uh, the... The Jewish religious system and the Jewish leaders, we're talking Pharisees, Sadducees, those who were trying to rely on their own righteousness, were not going to be part of this heavenly kingdom. That they are not part of the heavenly kingdom. Whereas the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders, thought surely when the Messiah comes, we will be part of the kingdom because we are the religious Jews. We are the ones that will deserve it. And they've been relying on their own righteousness. They've been speaking things. They've been doing things that look good. They've been saying things that sound good. But as we've been looking through Jesus' parables, and time and time again he's been saying, no, the kingdom of heaven is not for the self-righteous. It is for those who need to come to the king in humility. And so that's what Jesus has been showing for in several different ways through parables and all different what things. And so we've seen so far that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king that's brought the heavenly kingdom to earth, that this kingdom isn't what people were expecting. And so therefore, the Jewish religious system, the system itself that is set up to please God through righteous acts and the leaders themselves who are leading Israel towards self-righteousness, all of that is not what the kingdom of God is about. That the heavenly kingdom is bigger and broader than anyone ever imagined and it would be not only for those Jew- for the Jewish people who will be who will humble themselves and the outcasts that will humble themselves but even for the Gentiles. So that's just in a nutshell what we've seen in the first 21 and a half chapters here of uh, Matthew. So that's where we've been and now we find ourselves halfway through Matthew 22. And what we're going to see today is that for these religious leaders that we were just talking about, the ones that Jesus has been telling them, listen, this you, you got it all wrong. You're not part of the kingdom because you might be saying the right things and doing the right things and, and trying to uh, manufacture your own righteousness, but that's not going to get you in the kingdom. And he's been saying that over and over again in so many different ways. And for the religious leaders, enough was enough. Enough is enough for them. And they are tired of being told that they are not in the kingdom because they don't believe it to be true. And so they set out, and they've already been doing this, but they specifically make it their mission, and they set out to destroy Jesus' credibility. So they think, all right, if, if, if Jesus is going to be saying these things to us, uh, we need to find a way to get to him, we need to find a way to discredit him, either before our Jewish people or before Rome, either way, however they can discredit him, then they could prove that he's not the Messiah, that he's not the king, and that everything he's been saying throughout the book of Matthew is a big lie. And that's really what their goal is. And so they set out to destroy Jesus' credibility, and they do that through setting traps for him. They actually set out to try to entangle him, to try to trap him, and they're going to try some very creative ways. But Jesus, being the Son of God, is going to flip those around. And that's where, before we jump into our message today, what we're going to see 
Uh, and I'm going to give a sports analogy, which many of you are familiar with because I'm a sports guy. But I'm actually going to do an analogy from a sport that I'm not that familiar with. Uh, but I've watched some matches, and I've been intrigued by how the whole thing works. And we're going to talk about wrestling for a little bit. Wrestling, I'm not talking WWE or WWF, whatever it's called now. Okay, I'm not talking about folding chairs, hitting people over the head. We're talking about real wrestling that you would see if you went down to the high school. If you go to look at the Olympics, there's real wrestling happening. And I remember when I first watched a wrestling match, I thought it was very strange uh, that uh, when they start each round match, I'm not even sure what it's called, that's what I said, I'm not that familiar with wrestling, but what I do know is that one wrestler gets down, is basically on his hands and knees, and the other one gets to be on top and gets to start with really a position of power. And that's the offensive wrestler, I've learned, and then there's a defensive wrestler, the one that's underneath. And so, as wrestling goes on, I was really confused by this. I'm like, why isn't, this doesn't seem fair. Now, there also is a neutral position. I, I've come to know that both of them started standing up. But for the most part, you see one down and one up. And, and it's like, okay, there's, there's a great disadvantage here, it seems like to me, to the one that's below. And so, the offensive wrestler is, the goal is to get that other wrestler down, to pin them, to get points. And, and the whole thing about wrestling, if you haven't watched it before, is you get points based on how well you do. If you can get people down to the ground, of course, if everybody knows about a pin, if you get them down and their shoulder blades are down, then you can pin them and win the match. But what I am thinking about as I'm thinking about wrestling is here we almost see Jesus and these religious leaders in a wrestling match. However, the religious leaders think that they have the offensive position. So they think they've got Jesus down on his hands and knees. They think that they're on top, ready to take him down. And they've got him in this trap. They've got him in this place where it seems like all the chips are stacked against Jesus and everything is going to go in the way of the offensive wrestler. And they're taking that stance as that offensive wrestler. And what they're going to do is they're going to be getting ready to take Jesus down. But if you watch wrestling, you know you get points in a couple of different ways. Yes, you can get people down, but another way to get points is to escape from someone. It's actually, if you're that defensive wrestler and you're on the ground and you've got someone on top of you trying to get you down, if you can get out of their grasp, you get a point. You don't have to do anything offensive to hurt them. All you have to do is get out. But then, what's even greater is you get a point for that. But if you're on the bottom and you start in a wrestling match and you are able to not only escape but actually do a reversal and get the person that was on offense and flip them around and now you're on offense, you get two points. And then if you continue on, you get more and more points. And I'm not going to go into all the deal about how wrestling works because I'm still learning. But the idea here is what we're seeing in this wrestling match of Jesus and the the religious leaders is they have the offensive position, so they think. They think they've got Jesus in a place where he has no hope. But what Jesus is going to do at the end of our passage today is he's not only going to escape their traps, he's not only going to get away from what they're trying to do, but he's going to flip things completely around, do a complete reversal, and he's going to put them on their back. And that's what we're going to see Jesus do at the end of this, because in the end, if you know wrestling, you only wrestle in your weight class, so you can only go with people that are about the same weight as you. But in this case, the religious leaders may have thought they were in the same weight class as Jesus, but what we're going to see is Jesus is in a much, much bigger weight class, and he takes them down through a reversal of what they've tried to do to him. And so if you're a a sports person, maybe that'll help you as we go through this message. That's what I was thinking as I was looking at this. But this isn't a physical wrestling match. This is going to be a wrestling match of of wits, of words, of wisdom, and trying to figure out how this is all going to work. And so that's what we're going to see today as we go to this passage. And so the main point, though, that we are going to see after all this match, after the match is over, after Jesus has won this wrestling match, we're going to see the main point today is this. Jesus teaches that his heavenly kingdom is not measured by earthly wit. The religious leaders think that they can apply earthly wisdom to Jesus, and that's going to stump him, that's going to throw him off, that's going to discredit him. But Jesus says, no, 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 the heavenly kingdom is so much bigger and stronger and more amazing than you could ever imagine, and it is not going to be defined by earthly wisdom, by earthly wit. It's not going to happen. Again, as I've said, the the trappers in our story today think they have Jesus in a corner. They think they've got him in a place where they want him and that they'll be able to use their wit and their wisdom to outsmart Jesus and prove him to be wrong. But what we're going to see is that their wit is no match for Jesus's. And that's what we're going to see as we go on today. I think I have preached a message very similar to this before as we went through the book of Mark. And I will say, I remember saying at that point, and I will say this again, we, I think, so many times have Jesus in our mind, and we, we know a lot about Jesus, but I don't think we really think about how clever and smart and wise he really is. And we're going to see that on full display today as we go to this passage. 
So what we're actually going to do, though, instead of reading all the passage together, we are going to go to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to look at each different trap that happens. And as we look at each trap, we're going to look at who the trappers are, what the trap is, and then how Jesus escapes. And actually, as we get to trap four, we're going to see the reversal that I've talked about. So if you want to go with me to Matthew chapter 22, that's where we'll be. Matthew 22. And we're going to start uh, in verse 15. And we will end our first time, our first trap at verse 22. All right, so let's read. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So here's the first trap, the first attack, if you will, that uh, the religious leaders try on Jesus And they try to trap him, and we're going to see why this is a trap uh, in just a second. But really, what this this question comes down to, this trap that they're trying to find for Jesus, is really getting us down to this idea that they are questioning Jesus' loyalty. They are questioning Jesus' loyalty. And they've got a really good plan for this. So enter the trappers of our first trap. The trappers are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, actually, it's not the Pharisees themselves. What we're going to see is the Pharisees send their disciples. So basically, um, okay, you're following us. You're trying to learn from us. Here, we're going to give you a mission. So they send out their, they send out their goons, if you will, to go to talk to Jesus. And, but these guys, the disciples of the Pharisees, are also joined by the Herodians. Now, just the name of that should tell you what these guys are. These people are followers and faithful, loyal subjects of Herod. Herod was a puppet king from Rome. So really, this was the class of Jewish people that would be, had their ultimate loyalties were more to Rome and were more to Herod and more to the, the Gentile lords over them. That was their, that was their loyalty. Whereas, you know, the Pharisees would be the complete opposite. The Pharisees, um, they are really anti-Roman. They are to the point where they're preaching against Rome, that they're ready to overthrow the, the, the bonds that Rome has put on them. That's what the Pharisees want to do. And, and really, now we see these two groups coming together, which seems very, very strange at first look. Most of the time, these two groups of people would not be coming together. Uh, this would be like taking a far, far left and a far right person and having them go together and, and, and going to have a, a mission together. That, it wouldn't seem to happen, and yet they come together, but we see that there's a reason. The Pharisees are wanting to get to Jesus, and they're wanting to prove that he is not who he says he is, but the Herodians are in the same boat. They both have something to gain by Jesus not being the king of the Jews, by Jesus not being seen as the Messiah. Because their loyalties are already split. And so these two groups come together. Anti-Roman religious people meet pro-Roman loyalists. And they come together to ask Jesus some questions. But before they ask Jesus their question, notice what they do. They don't just come and just ask the question. Oh, they lay it on thick. They butter them up. They say all sorts of things. We know who you are. We know that you are true. We know that you teach the word of God truthfully. I mean, man, they're really just thro- just throwing it at him. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And then they go into their question. Now, now, keep in mind what's happening here. There are two distinct groups of people coming to Jesus to ask the same question. And they're saying, hey, we know that you don't get swayed by people's opinions, that you don't care what things look like, you're just going to tell us how it is. That's basically what they say. And that is true. Jesus is a very truthful person. We've seen that time and time again. He's going to say what is true. And so they're using that, what he's been saying, what his disciples are saying about him, and they're coming and saying, yes, we know this is true. And what they're basically saying here is, ha, you have no, you have no way here. Look, I mean, we've got all sorts of people. We've got the Pharisees. We've got the Herodians. They're right here. And the, the question we're about to ask you, you know, if you were going to, you're looking at both these groups of people, they're going to have completely different opinions on this matter. So you are not going to be able to, to go to one side or the other. You're going to have to, you're going to have to pick. 
And you're going to have to say, it doesn't matter who's looking at me or who's listening, but I'm going to say what's true. And that's what Jesus is going to do, but not in the way that they think. And so here's the question they ask, in a nutshell, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it, is it, should we be paying taxes to a foreign government that is really our oppressor? And so why would they ask this question? Well, look at the two groups again. And here's what they're trying to do. They're trying to put Jesus in a corner. They're trying to make it so that there is no way for him to get out. They're trying to put that ultimate hold on him, and they've done it by bringing these two groups together. And really, here's the thing. On one side, the Herodians want Jesus to say yes. They're standing there, and they're asking the question because they want to hear Jesus say yes. Yes, pay taxes to Caesar because we need to be loyal to Rome. That's what's, that's what's better for our people. And the Pharisees and their disciples would be on the other end, and they'd be looking for Jesus to say no. They'd be like, Jesus, you need to say no, because we need to know that uh, it's about Israel. Like, Israel is God's kingdom, not Rome, and so we're not going to submit to another foreign kingdom. That's not how this is going to work. And so both groups want him to say something different. Again, going back to why they say, hey, we know that you are no respecter of persons, that you aren't going to look at this and say, oh, I'm going to shade my answer based on who's asking because there's really no right answer for Jesus in this situation. If he says no, uh, you shouldn't pay taxes, then the Pharisees are going to be happy, the the Herodians are going to be unhappy, they're going to report it to Herod and to Rome, and Rome's not going to be happy. If he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, yes, we should be loyal to Rome, then the Pharisees are going to decry him as, you can't be the Messiah if you're going to be loyal to a foreign government. That's not how this works. And so he's really in an impossible spot, so they think. Either way, seems to put Jesus in hot water, either with the Jews or the Romans. And can I just say, the core of this question is not about money. The core of this question is about loyalty. They're really asking Jesus, who are you loyal to and who should we be loyal to? Are we loyal to the kingdom of Israel or are you loyal to the kingdom of Rome? And they're asking Jesus to declare his loyalties so that they can trap him and so they can bring him down and discredit him. And Jesus then gives his escape. He gets out from their hold and he says something that at first glance seems like he might be agreeing with the Herodians, but listen to what he actually is saying here. He grabs a coin. He says, here, I need a coin. But before he does that, he accuses them of being hypocrites. By the way, let's not miss that. Jesus knows what they're trying to do. Now, maybe this is because he has some divine knowledge. I just think it's because it's pretty obvious what they're doing. I think Jesus is wise, and he sees that they're coming at him, and these guys have never come with him and given these kind of glowing words to him before. And when the two groups come in together to ask him a question, he knows something's up. And he knows that they're trying to test him. He knows that they're trying to trap him. He knows that their intention is not to come to find out true knowledge or to really understand what Jesus would teach. They're not looking for truth. They are looking to trap him, and he knows that, and so he calls them hypocrites. He says, you're saying one thing, you're coming and saying that you're going to listen to me and you want the truth, but that's not true. And Jesus is going to continue to call the religious leaders of this time hypocrites over and over again, ones who say and do certain things but don't actually trust in God with their heart. And and that is what's going on here. So he says, okay, give me the coin. He takes a coin, takes a denarius, and he asks, Who's, whose image is on this? What inscription is on this? And of course they say, it's image. If you see your bulletin, that's, a, that's an example of what a Roman coin would look like. It would be a coin with the, the face of the current Caesar. And so he points it out. He says, look, who's on this? Whose inscription is here? And they say, well, of course, it's Caesar's. That makes sense. And then Jesus says this, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's interesting, the word that Jesus used here when he says render uh, is actually this idea of to pay a debt. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, okay, listen, okay, if this is Caesar's coin that he's given you to use for living, you know, to buy things, to buy goods, to, to live in a society and in an economy, since that's Caesar's coin, give it back to him because you kind of owe him that. I mean, that's really the truth here. And he's saying, listen, if this is Caesar's coin, you're not giving your loyalty to him, you're just giving money to him. It's like it's just a coin. 
Like, give it back to him because he's the one who gave it to you. Like, that, that's how it works. And that's how economy works. That's how, that's how, uh, that's how any kingdom would run. A earthly kingdom would run. But see, the, the religious leaders are thinking so earthly about all of this. They're thinking, well, surely, whoever you're giving your money to must be who you're loyal to. But that is not the point. And Jesus makes it very clear right away. Listen, this is not about money, whatever. Give the coin that has this guy's picture on it. Give it back to him. Who cares? But then he says, but give to God what is God's. And so here's the thing. What the religious leaders are trying to get him to do is say, I'm either going to be loyal to Israel or I'm going to be loyal to Rome. But what Jesus says is, I am loyal to God. And we all need to be loyal to God. It's not about an earthly kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. It's about a different kind of kingdom that belongs to God. And what, what he is saying to these religious leaders and all those who are listening is that loyalty is not measured by the politics of earth, but by obedience to God. Loyalty is not measured by the politics of earth, but by obedience to God. We can be loyal to earthly things, <clears throat> but our ultimate loyalty needs to be to God. Think about the covenant that Israel has made with God and the covenant itself is a promise to say we're going to be loyal. As God is loyal to us, we will be loyal to God. And the, the Jewish people have not done that. They have not been loyal to God. They have sold themselves out for a physical kingdom. And Jesus is reminding that this money, this coin is not about loyalty. This is, Give your coin to who you need to give your coin. But everything else is God's. And so God has given you all things, so give back to Him all things. Give your whole self to God. Give your whole self, your life, your obedience. Give it out. Be in that covenant. Promise to God and follow that and do that. And that is what life is about. And so he says to these religious leaders who want him to say either be loyal to Israel or be loyal to, uh, to Rome. He says, no, we're loyal to God. That is our ultimate loyalty. We live for him. <clears throat> That's really what Jesus is getting at here as he says that you render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, we could take a sidetrack here and we could talk about whether we should pay taxes or how we should obey the government. That's for a whole other conversation another time. I don't think that's even the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is making a very clear point that our ultimate loyalty, no matter what is we're facing in this world, no matter where we find ourselves, our ultimate loyalty is him. He is the one to be loyal to. And so they hear this and they know that they've failed. He escapes their hold. Because when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So he gets out of this first trap by not only <clears throat> just ignoring it or giving a satisfactory answer, but he actually stumps them completely. And so they back off. And then comes trap number two. So trap number two starts in verse 23 uh, and is going to go to 33. <clears throat> The same day the Sadducees came to him to say that, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us that first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. And so too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, we have, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Enter in the second trap. Enter in the second set of trappers. The second set of trappers are the Sadducees. Now, again, uh, we've, we all remember that song we used to sing. The Sadducees are sad, you see. Yes, well, they're not. Uh, they're, they're actually very, uh, they're very much into wealth. They are, they are very much into the political system. And they, their theology is different than the Pharisees. And, and here's where we need to understand who the Sadducees are. These are religious leaders. Again, they are, they are religious leaders. Many of them had high powers of influence. But they're at odds with the Pharisees theologically, and yet again are coming at Jesus here to try to trap him. 
They, and what Sadducees didn't do, un, unlike the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in a, in a spiritual resurrection, in a resurrection of life, that there was more to this physical life, that there was a spiritual aspect of an, of an afterlife, of eternal life. They did believe that. And obviously Jesus does too, by the way, and book, throughout Matthew he's been talking about eternal life. But the Sadducees don't believe in a spiritual reality, including the future resurrection. We're told that here in this passage. They don't believe in resurrection. In other words, they don't believe that, there's, that God is more powerful than death. Uh, Acts 23, verse 8, uh, as uh, we learn a little bit more about the Sadducees as we go through the early church, and what we're told in Acts 23, 8, is for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The point of Sadducees is they are really the, the group here that, yes, they, they say they're religious in some ways, but they don't really believe in the spiritual reality of a resurrected life, of eternal life. They don't believe that that is something that is a, a legitimate thing. In other words, what they're saying is this life is all there is. This life is all there is. What we have physically is what we need to live for. That's what the Sadducees would say. They say, yeah, God, he exists and he's here and he's helping us in this life, but there's no other life that we have to worry about. There's no spiritual aspect. And we just said that, saw that in Acts 23. Seems to be they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits, they don't believe in a resurrection. So in other words, really the idea of resurrection is eternal life. That's really what we're getting at. They don't believe in spirit. Uh, but So they don't believe in this, that there's anything beyond this world. And that's what I want us to keep in mind. Really, they would be the ones who today, if you know this uh, expression, would say, YOLO, you only live once, so live it up. And that's what the Sadducees are doing. And, and so we've got to understand that. And by the way, just as an aside, is this something we see happening today? I think this is one of the biggest things we see today. People who may even say they're religious, but really live in a way that says, this world is all there is, so I'm going to live for it, whatever it takes. So they set this trap for Jesus. This trap that they set, then the Sadducees come, and basically what they're asking is, how can there really be an afterlife? How can there really be eternal life? How can there be a spiritual reality? How can there be an afterlife? This just doesn't make sense. They're trying to apply to logic, and they're saying, okay, we're going to logically come to Jesus and prove to him that there is really no resurrection. There is no eternal life. That this whole thing he's been teaching and what the Pharisees say, it's all... Uh, it's all false. And so they come and they have this, what they think is an airtight argument. They've got this offensive position. They've got a hold on Jesus so they think that he's not going to be able to break. And they refer to uh, Leverite marriage from Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. I won't read that because they do sum it up pretty well. Basically, there was, a, there was a stipulation in the Old Testament law that said, in order to preserve a family, if a woman uh, and her husband dies before they have any children, so there's no one to carry on the legacy of that family, the family line, then the brother of that guy who died would come and marry that woman who is now a widow and give her a child, and that child would really be the one that would t- continue on the family line of the first brother. And, that's, and that is set up in the Old Testament as a way to preserve family lines, to preserve inheritances. It's really a very, very smart thing to do, and that's how God had laid it out for them. And so the Sadducees, they know their Old Testament. By the way, another thing I didn't say about the Sadducees, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible as being inspired by God. Just the Pentateuch, just Moses' books. And so that, that's where they can come and, and have a lot of different theological views because that's all they know. That's all they study. That's all they believe is true. And so they know that. They, they know back to what was said about this marriage thing. And, and so they come to Jesus and they give him this airtight thing. They're like, okay, listen. So this happens seven times. Seven guys die. The girl dies. No babies. So, okay, now there's, there's a woman that had seven husbands. And now if there's an afterlife, if there's really an eternal life and people are going to be resurrected to new life, if that's going to happen, it can't happen because... She's not going to be able to have seven husbands. Who's going to be her real husband? How is this going to work? And they really think they've got Jesus trapped here. And Jesus, his answer is a, is a great escape. Um, by the way, just real quickly, uh, if there is no eternity, then the kingdom of heaven must be present and physical right now, which goes against everything that Jesus has been teaching. If he capitulates to the Sadducees, he'd be admitting that the kingdom that he came to bring is a physical kingdom of this world, but that is not what we've seen. That yes, one day there will be a physical kingdom that will be set up, but God, but Jesus has come to inaugurate and start a kingdom that at this point 
was a spiritual kingdom that would grow into one day being a physical kingdom. But all the Israel wanted was a physical kingdom that would throw off Rome. And so Jesus has been saying, your idea of the kingdom is not the same as God's idea of the kingdom. And they're trying to even trap him and say, listen, if we can get him to admit that there's no eternal life, if we can get him to admit that there's no resurrection, then there can't be eternal life and there can't be an eternal kingdom the way he's been teaching. And so it seems like everything is about to fall apart for Jesus. But then he gives his escape. He makes the escape from their hold. And he basically says this. I'm going to sum it up in my own words. But it says, Eternity is not measured by the constructs of earth, but by the power of God. Eternity is not measured by the constructs of earth, but by the power of God. And so he specifically talks about marriage. First of all, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. In just a moment, he's going to use the very scriptures that they would know to say that they don't understand uh, that eternal life is real because it's seen in the Pentateuch itself. But he's also saying that they don't know the power of God. In other words, they are saying that God has no power over death. They're saying that God is constrained to what this earth offers us. What we see is what we get. Death is the end of all things. There is no, God does have no power over that. It just is something that happens and we cease to exist. And the point is they're saying God has no power. They're really questioning God's power in this question because they're saying, obviously, this doesn't make any sense. She can't have seven husbands, so God is wrong. There is no resurrection, Jesus. It can't be true. And Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. You don't understand who he is and what he can do. You don't understand that he has power over death. And Jesus will show that time and time again, soon, through his own resurrection. But he also says they don't know the scriptures, and he'll get to them in just a minute. But before he gets to talking to them about their scriptures, he he goes back to the marriage thing. Since they're the ones that brought the marriage idea to him, he's going to use that as an object lesson to show that they don't understand what eternal life is really all about. And what he basically says is this, in the eternal state, marriage is not a thing to hold on to. Uh, Think about the purposes of marriage. The purpose of marriage uh, is for companionship, yes. It's for uh, a physical representation of love that is really meant to reflect God's love to his people. And it's also for the purpose of procreation. It's for the purpose of foreshadowing God's love, and it's for the purpose of procreation. Neither of those things in, in eternal life are going to be a thing that matters. Those things aren't needed any longer because we're in the presence of God, in the presence of his love, and procreation isn't something that needs to happen either because there's a, there'll be a perfect world. And that's eventually what will happen in the resurrection, in the new kingdom as it's set up. And basically what he is saying, though, keep in mind, this isn't just about marriage. Like, there, there's lots of that's been said about marriage, and, and I will say, like, keep in mind that your marriage for this life, it is temporary, And that's not a bad thing. It's not something to make you think, oh, that's sad. It's not temporary in the sense that you can get out of it whenever you want. But in eternity, listen, you're going to love your spouse just as much as you love everyone else because there's going to be perfect love in eternity. And that's what we can understand. But but I don't think Jesus' point here is just to make a point about marriage. I think greater than that is to say this. God is not constrained by earthly things. God is not constrained by the natural laws of this earth. He's not even constrained by marriage. To say, well, okay, so this institution that we've had on this earth needs to go forward into eternal life. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. Eternal life is different than this life. The future is different than what we have here. There is more to this world than what we see. And I really believe that's what Jesus is getting at as he talks about this. But then he goes on and he says, okay, so just like the angels are in heaven, in other words, they, they're not married, they're, they're living and worshiping God and experiencing his perfect love, and that's how it'll be for all of us who are resurrected and have eternal life. But then he says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, so Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He could just say, okay, I proved that I was right. Okay, I, I, I got out of your trap. But he goes on and says, I'm also going to challenge your very theology, the very belief you have about resurrection. And he's going to say, you're wrong, because you don't know the power of God, but you don't know his scriptures either. And so he goes and he says, have you not read what God said? Going back to Exodus, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so what Jesus says very, very clearly is he makes this escape and he says, listen, this is not 
about what this earth offers, but what we see is that God uses the present tense of who God is. Way back, whenever he talks to anyone, he always says, I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob, and now I am the God of you. No, Jesus, God is God. He always is God, and he's God in a present tense. And therefore, he is still the God of all these guys and all these people, which proves that there is the present tense speaks to the fact that there's an ongoing and future relationship with God and his people, even those who have died. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have died on this earth, still have a living relationship with God, because God is their God. He was, it's not that he was their God. And so again, Jesus is making it clear, even using the Pentateuch, even using what they've said, uh, u- he's using the idea that, listen, you guys know these scriptures, you know what God has said, and even God himself is saying, I am God, I am their God, and I always will be, and so there has to be a life. And he says, I am the- he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, those who die are still living, because God is their God. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And really what Jesus is saying is this life is not all there is. And again, he stumps them completely and they wander away. Let's move on to trap number three. Try to speed up a little bit here. But in trap number three, we see the questioning of Jesus' knowledge. So far we've seen his loyalty and his theology. Uh, Now we have seen questioning of his knowledge. The trapper that comes in here is the lawyer, but let's read about what happens. Uh, verse 34. But the, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so enter trap four. We have the trapper who is a lawyer, a scribe, one of the ones who would know the law the very best out of the Pharisees. And we see the Pharisees have gotten together, and now he comes and he asks Jesus a question. Now, if we read the same, uh, the same account in Mark, it actually seems like this lawyer is uh, genuinely curious. There's a good chance that might be the case. He's just heard Jesus gave great answers that astounded everybody. So maybe he's at the point where he's like, I'm going to see what Jesus really knows here then. And he's genuinely wanting to be curious. But I don't know. It seems like in our context, and it even says here, that one of the lawyers came to test him. I still think there's an air of trying to discredit Jesus. And I think the idea here is this lawyer thinks he knows the law better than Jesus does. And so he's going to come and he's going to ask him a question. Was this a desperate attempt to discredit him? Or is he legitimately seeking an answer? I'm not exactly sure, but I think that as we look at all of this, this is another test where they're trying to show that Jesus isn't who he says he is. And the trap is this. Which law do you think is most important? That's really what he's asking. He says, what is the great commandment of the law? What is the most important thing that we need to obey? And, and the idea at this time was there, was there was an understanding of the Pharisees that there were some commandments that were heavy and weighty and there were some that were light. In other words, well, there are some commandments you really do have to follow, but other ones, eh, you know, if you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. And really what the lawyer is getting at, okay, what is it, what is it Jesus? What is the weightiest? What is the heaviest? What is the one thing that we need to do? Right, would, you, would you tell us what is it? Like, give, give us the law. And again, this could have gotten Jesus in trouble. If he had chosen one law over another, there would be somebody that would disagree and there would be contention. If he went right to all the laws in Leviticus, he went right to the Ten Commandments even and just picked one and said, this has got to be the greatest. Like uh, He could create a problem. He could create a dissension. But Jesus is going to answer just like he has before and he's going to escape this in the right way. The lawyer wants to know which commands are most important and Jesus makes it very clear. And Jesus, his escape is this. The law is not measured by earthly observance, but by love. The idea of the 
the Pharisees, the religious leaders at this time was, all we need to do is the more we obey the law, the better we'll be in God's kingdom. The more we obey the law, the better things will be. I, we will receive blessings if we just obey the law. And so the idea was we just need to do things. We just need to do, we need to do, we need to do, we need to do good works, we need to be righteous. If we can live righteous lives, then God will accept us. And that is really what, they've, what they're all about. We've seen that in Matthew. We see that throughout the New Testament. And Jesus doesn't give them what they want here in this, in this answer. He doesn't say, okay, well, if you just do these things, then this will, you'll be all set. You can ignore these, but make sure you do these things. No, he's giving a big, big picture, and he says, listen, it's about love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Everything you are, you need to love God with everything you are. He says, this is the great and first commandment. In other words, that's really the most important commandment, but the second one is just like it. So they're really connected here. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The lawyer was looking for rules to follow. Jesus points to a complete devotion to God and others as really what matters. It's not about rules, but it's about relationships. It's about how our relationship with God is. It's about how our relationship with others is. So the point here Jesus says is, it's not about all the things you do. It's about loving God and loving others. Now, indeed, we don't want to miss the idea, and even he says this in verse 40, on all these, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's not as if that means, well, if I just have an attitude of love, that that means I can do whatever else I want. But actually, the idea here is that if we are loving God, and if we are loving people, then everything else will fall underneath. Everything else will fall in line. If we are truly loving God with everything we are and loving others as ourselves, then what Jesus says is it's not about what you have to do or don't do. It's about loving. And as that love works itself out, then obedience will happen. But if all we do is measure our life on observance, just on doing what we need to do and not doing it out of love and not being a person that loves God and loves others, then we're missing out on what the law is all about. We're missing out not in what the law is about, but what all the scriptures are about. All, on these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to the importance of loving God and loving others. And by the way, Jesus would be the one that is going to show these commandments to be ultimately true as he gives himself. As he loves God enough to do what he needs to do to show his love for us as he gives his life. And so Jesus says it's about love, not about law. And then trap four is where we need to go next. And this is where things all pivot. This is where the reversal is about to happen. So let's read these last few verses in 41 through 46. Now when the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, who do you think, the, who do you think what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, And he said to them, How is it that David in the Spirit then calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is now the trapper. So we see the trapper in this situation is Jesus himself. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. They've been trying to trap him. They've been asking him tricky questions, and he asked them a doozy that they can't answer. Well, actually, they think they can answer, but then they realize they really can't. So the trap that he sets for them is really this question, who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? He says, what do you think about the Christ? That's the word for Messiah. Whose son is he? So he's asking these religious leaders that no doubt know the answer, who is the Messiah? And they give the right answer, but not a complete answer. They say the son of David. Remember, the religious leaders at this time are so in believing that the Messiah is going to be a physical ruler that is coming to set them free from Rome that they just look at him as a physical king, just as the son of David, that he has come as a man and he is going to rule. That's what they think of the Messiah. And he says, yes, they will be, he'll be a son of David. And so they understand that, yes, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. But then Jesus says, well, we're going to take it one step further because now he gives the reversal. They think, they've had, they think they've had the upper hand and now he just reverses it all over to them. 
And what he's going to say, the answer is this. The Messiah is not merely measured by earthly descent, but also by his deity. The Messiah is not merely measured by his earthly descent, but also by his deity. Jesus here goes on the offensive to show that their understanding of the Messiah is incomplete and inadequate. The Messiah, whom, by the way, Jesus has already claimed to be, there's no question about that, the Messiah, whom Jesus had already claimed to be and who his followers were claiming him to be, is not only David's son. He's not only the descendant of David, the human descendant of David, but what he points out here is that he is David's Lord, and the word there is Adonai, which is another word for God, David's Lord as well. So Jesus, the Messiah, is man and God. He points them to Psalm 110 here, He points him to that and says, listen, in Psalm 110, this is what David says about the Messiah. And they all would accept that the Messiah was being spoken of here. And what he says is David himself calls his, calls the Messiah his Lord. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he just asked this question. It's a rhetorical question that they should know the answer and they probably do, but they don't want to say it. If then David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? The point here is that Jesus is pointing out that the Messiah, indeed, is not only a human king, and yes, he is, but he is God himself. The kingdom of the Messiah, therefore, is not of this world. The kingdom of the Messiah is a heavenly kingdom. This is the thing we've been seeing all through the book of Matthew, and he's pointing it out again to these Pharisees as they gather together, and he says, look, you understand Psalm 110. You understand that the Messiah is the son of David, but do you understand that he is Lord as well? Because here's the thing. These Pharisees needed to see Jesus as their Lord, and they were refusing to do so. He has now completely reversed the attacks and traps. All the traps they tried to set for him, he has now completely reversed. He has put them in the defensive, and they have no defense. In the end, he will pin them. What the religious leaders wanted to do to Jesus, he ends up not only avoiding and getting away from, but he also manages to discredit them in front of all. They were trying to discredit Jesus, and he discredits them. He shows what the truth is, and his great wisdom, his great wit here, his his great understanding of how to interact and communicate is seen at full display here. And he asks them this rhetorical questions, and what happens at the end? They say... And no one was able to answer him. So in other words, oh man, if we answer him, if we say that he's God, then we're saying that Jesus is God. Then, oh man, I don't know what, we can't do that. But they can't answer him. They don't even say a word. They're just put silence. He makes them speechless. And from that day, no one ever asked him, or dare ask him any more questions. In other words, they're like, okay, we tried, we failed, let's run. Okay? They are, they are not wanting anything to do with being really completely destroyed in this battle of wits. And that's what happens here. And so they want nothing to do with it because they know that they have no leg to stand on. So the point for us in all of this at the end here is to remember that Jesus, the Messiah, we know he's the Messiah, the one that was promised through the Old Testament, is both God and man. And so, and the reason that he is both God and man, we know this to be true, he's 100% God, 100% man. Okay? He is man. He came and he was born as a man so that he could live the life, the perfect life that we couldn't live so that he could also die the death that we deserve to die. As, as God, he's immortal, but as a man, he was able to die and pay the penalty for our sin. But yet as God, he also is able to rise again and defeat sin and death. See, remember, the Sadducees thought that God wasn't powerful enough. He couldn't beat death. But Jesus would prove that, yes, God can beat death because he did. And he rose again to defeat sin, death, once and for all. So that anyone who comes to know him, anyone who comes to believe in Jesus and his death and his resurrection will have eternal life. There is eternal life to come. And that eternal life is found in Jesus. And the point for us here, even as he talks to the Pharisees, is you need to understand that the Messiah is not just an earthly king. It's not about this earthly world, but he is a heavenly king that is God himself, and therefore we worship him. He is the one that we worship. There are many places throughout Scripture, and for time I won't go there, but you can look at even Romans chapter 1 and just see this idea that Jesus is not only the Son of God, he descended from David, but also he is... This, actually, you know what? I need to read this. Romans 1, 1 through 4. It's on, the, it's on the PowerPoint. Romans 1, 1 through 4. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, we see, we see it very clearly. Yes, Jesus, a man descended from David. According to the flesh, he descended from David, but he is also God. He's the Son of God in power. And how do we know that? Because of the holiness that we see through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus will defeat sin and death, and there is power, there is a resurrection that's going to happen, there is eternal life, and the whole point here, Jesus gets all the way around where, the, where all the religious leaders wanted to discredit him and show him to be something he wasn't. Jesus says, I am so much more than you think I am. And they can't understand it or they refuse to understand it. So let's ask some questions of ourselves this morning as we think about what we just read. Jesus, would, Jesus is going to show so much about who he is. This last trap, there was a questioning of his identity. But he was the one questioning his own identity, but he knew what it was and he gave them the answer. And so as he did that, do we know who he is as well? Do you truly know who Jesus is? Jesus is not just a good teacher who you can go to the Bible and say, okay, he's got some good things to say. If I live by them, then I'll live a better life. Jesus is not just that. He, he, he did teach some great, wonderful things that we should follow. But Jesus is God himself who came to the earth as a man to die for our sins, to give us forgiveness of our sins if we will come to him in faith and trust him with our lives and trust him for forgiveness. That is the truth that we can cling to and know that because Jesus is God and man, that he is able to forgive us of our sins and give us a new life. Will we go to him and believe in him for that? Will we trust in him for that? And if you are here today and you do not know who Jesus really is, maybe you've seen him as just a man, or maybe you just you understand him as a God figure, maybe, but you don't understand what he really did by dying for your sins and dying on the cross. And if you don't understand that, he did that so you'd be forgiven. Please don't leave today without finding more about how you can know Jesus as your Savior. But for the rest of us here today that know Jesus... Let us just ask some questions about what we've seen today. I'm going to kind of go backwards a little bit. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about is love. Like, do are we measuring our lives by observance of rules or by love? Are we measuring our lives by our observance of rules or are we doing it by love? Are we loving God and loving others? First John 4. I want to go there quickly. Just read these to you and, and I pray that you will contemplate on these things. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and then we'll also look at 19 through 21. Beloved, let us not love, or let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Then as we go on in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. First John and so many other places make it very clear that the life we live is not to be, we're not to be walking around trying to obey as many rules as we can. Now, don't get me wrong, obey God at every point you have an opportunity. But if you're living a legalistic life that says the more rules I obey, the better God's gonna see me, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us grace and he says, and it says since we have been given grace, we've been given salvation, all that we need to, that we should be doing is loving God and loving others. And as we do that, then yes, we will obey him in so many ways. But don't rest your, your, your knowledge, your understanding of where you are with God based on what you're doing, but base it on the love that God has given you for himself and for others. A couple more questions just to ask as we close. First of all, are we measuring our lives by earthly experience or by eternity? So many of us are believing that this life is all there is. Maybe in our heads, maybe we say that we know there's more to this life, but do we really live like it? Or are we living in a way that is just like the Sadducees that think, well, this life is all there is. 
You only live once, so do whatever you want now because you don't have any future. Know that that's not true. Know that there is eternal life that is coming and don't live like this earth is all there is. And finally, are we measuring our lives by our earthly loyalties or by our obedience to God? We live in a world today that wants to find loyalty in so many different places. Whether it's a sports team. I mean, I'm a proud member of Bill's Mafia, right? But that's not where our ultimate loyalty should lie. Maybe, it's be, maybe our ultimate loyalty is to a political party. Maybe our loyalty is to something altogether different. Some group that you think you belong to or some type of person you think you are, whatever it might be. And we want to be loyal to those things. What the earth says, what earthly things they might be. Whether politics, whether sports teams, whatever it could be. What are we loyal to? And the thing is, it's not wrong to have connections with people or to like a sports team. It's not wrong to vote a certain way. But if that is our ultimate loyalty, and it's not to God himself, then we're missing out on what God has to offer us. Because he wants our loyalty. And he wants us to obey. And we do that as we love God and love others. Let's close in prayer this morning. Lord, I thank you for bringing us together this morning and for your word. I pray that you would help us to understand what you would have for us to know. Um, Holy Spirit, as you take your word, would you help us to understand it? God, would you help us to know not only what we need to know, but God, how we need to live. We need your help in that. We need your grace in that. Would you help us? We thank you so much for what you've taught us. We pray that you continue to teach us as we go through our weeks. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.